This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and use the J. Scott promo code when signing up to receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. I'm your host, J. Scott. And I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we're going to have a great episode with Cliff Gray of Flat Tops Wilderness Guides out of Colorado. And uh, Cliff is able to shed a real unique perspective on outfitting and outfitting in Colorado and some of the great mule deer and elk hunts that he provides. But before we get into that, I want to remind you that Colorado application, the deadline is April 5th. And interesting, with Colorado, you have to put all the money up front. So you have to float the money up front. You have to do everything uh, uh, elk and and um, deer you can do online uh, but the sheep you have to do um, with paper applications so make sure that your deadline uh, that you know about the deadline april 5th and make sure you get all your applications in uh, we've also got nevada is coming up here in april and uh, we've got some other deadlines as well uh, Montana was just March 15th. Um, Idaho is coming up here uh, in uh, April, at the end of April. So we're going to do an episode on um, Colorado breaking down all the units. But in this particular episode with Cliff Gray, uh, we're going to be talking mainly about the flat tops and specifically about unit 25 in which Cliff is, uh, is in. And I want to remind you that uh, the 23rd of March, which is just a few days from when this episode will air, New Mexico big game regulations are due. So hopefully you've been able to listen to some of these uh, podcasts with Adam Bronson and with Tom McReynolds to help in your decision of what units to apply for. I want to also bring to light uh, GoHunt.com Insider um, is doing a fantastic job with their uh, unit or their state strategies, the application strategies. And I'm starting to look at the 2016 Colorado deer uh, strategies and they break down both the mule deer and the whitetail deer as well as the elk and, and some of the other animals. Um, and there's some really cool charts and graphs and, uh, it walks through, uh, some of the resident and non-resident draw odds. And it's pretty interesting to be able to go through this and see how many applicants last year put in for the same exact tag that I'm looking at putting in for this year. And so I want to encourage you guys to, uh, check out your go hunt dot com insider um, draw odds and if you're not already a member uh, highly recommend uh, checking into that and signing up if you do use the j scott promo code obviously you'll get a 50 dollars kuyu gift card 
One thing that I thought was interesting here on the current mule deer herd condition on, on one of the charts here is that in 2005 and 2006, it looks like there was a high of, of mule deer, uh, 613,450 in 05 and 612,760 in 06. And then of course they had the big, uh, winter kill, uh, there in 07 and, uh, you know, the deer herd numbers statewide now, well in 13, they were at 390,660. And 2014 numbers, they had come up a little bit to 424,000. But interestingly, almost 200,000 deer, say 190,000 deer off the highs of, of um, 0506. So very interesting. Um, also something to remember that I'm sure we're going to go over a lot when we cover all the different units on Colorado elk and deer is that the deer seasons... Uh, actually are about as late as they possibly get. So you're going to get third season uh, deer that is usually when the fourth season is. The dates are November 5th to the 13th in 2016. And the fourth season rifle deer is November 16th through the 20th. So just keep that in mind when applying. You may ask, what does that mean? Well, that means the deer are going to be... Uh, definitely pushing does and rutting uh, on that November 16th, the 20th season, that fourth season. Uh, but dang sure on that third season too, uh, especially towards the last four or five days of the hunt should be fantastic. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see if everybody tries to cash in their points and you know what kind of point creep we have. But uh, uh, I'm looking forward to a great episode with Cliff Gray. Uh, I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for tuning in to the podcast and I uh, just get uh, so much, uh, it's, it's so humbling to get all the emails that I get um, with you guys telling me how much you love the podcast and how much value you find in it. Uh, I do need a little bit of help from you guys um, on my iTunes. If you're listening on iTunes, please go on there and give us a favorable review uh, we don't give prizes and, you know, door prize number one for, you know, this review and that review, but I would, uh, trust that if you guys find value in, um, in, in this podcast that you would go on there and, and give favorable reviews and five-star ratings. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't really believe in buying my ratings and I think by, you know, doing giveaways and, prize packages. I just think that that's, um, you know, for others that use the, you know, they, they, they look at the, the ratings. If I'm paying you guys, you're going to give me great ratings. So, you know, whatever the ratings are, I, I'd encourage you to go on there and, and, uh, give us, give us good ratings. And, um, I appreciate that. You can email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. If you have any questions, uh, if you have any comments or if you have any suggestions for this podcast and a lot of these podcasts that I've done and a lot of them that are in the queue are directly from, you know, things that you guys want to specifically see and hear. So um, let's uh, let's see. Um, yeah. Don't forget the late rifle seasons in Colorado. That's going to be awesome.
And um, don't forget to follow on Instagram at jscottoutdoors, my associate Dar Colburn at Dar Colburn, uh, Facebook, J. Scott Outdoors, YouTube channel, J. Scott Outdoors, and uh, of course our website, uh, J. Scott Outdoors. Also, you can um, check out the latest blog posts on jscottoutdoors.com. Uh, Dara and I are actually at Colburn and Scott Outfitters. Um, we have a bunch of ranches that we have leased for Mexico for coos deer. And we have both outfitted, fully outfitted hunts and do-it-yourself hunts. So uh, if you go on jscottoutdoors.com, you'll be able to see some of the country of some of the ranches. And uh, there's going to be many more posts here to come uh, on that. But if you have any questions, you want to know about those uh, do-it-yourself coos deer hunts, uh, send me an email, jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Uh, guys, thanks for all your attention to this podcast and your support. Uh, let's get right to the episode. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Cliff Gray from Flat Tops Wilderness Guides. And Cliff lives not too far from where I spend the summers. Uh, Cliff, you can probably explain it better, but it's going to be kind of between uh gypsum and uh glenwood springs correct colorado yeah that's pretty much you know where it is and you know most of the best way to describe it to guys who've hunted colorado is i'm pretty much in the dead center of unit 25 unit 25 so that's going to be i assume the border is going to be i-70 on the south and then it's going to run to the north and take in a big chunk of the flat tops wilderness yeah, so the 25 is the northeast uh, uh, unit for the flat tops. <clears throat> gotcha. Oh, excuse and, me, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the southeast. Southeast, okay. Yep. And um, your house where you actually live is not far off the Colorado River where the confluence of the Eagle and, and the Colorado meet, correct? Yeah, exactly. It's about 20 or 30 minutes from there. Um you know, mostly on a dirt road uh, and all that stuff, but uh, but yeah, we're kind of right in that that area, right before you slide down into the Glenwood Canyon. Gotcha. And um, you live at about eight thousand feet, uh, or maybe nine thousand. How how high do you live? Yeah. So so our place, and that's that's where I do all my packing and outfitting out of. And it, it it essentially borders the wilderness area, and we we live there year round. It's right at eight thousand feet. Um, and uh, it's not too bad. We have power and stuff out there, but but it's a trek, um, as you can as you can imagine. But uh, yeah, and essentially it's uh, it's right in the I would call it the end of the winter range for the for the flat tops. You know, it's it's at the at the elevation that goes from there into the wilderness. So it's in that eight thousand area. How often in the winter do you get completely snowed in where your road is impassable? Uh, you know, it would, it would happen. I, I have a, you know, I have a D5 caterpillar as my snow plow. So I never, I never totally get snowed in, you know, Jay, but, um, you, you have to have something like that for living in that kind of an area. If I didn't have that, I mean, it could surely happen. It'd probably happen a couple times a year. Um, and luckily I do have, you know, a big portion of that actually gets, um, gets maintained, you know, not all the way to my house, but a, a big portion of it. Cause there's, 
you know, Colorado, a lot of those, you know, that area when I was a kid was different. A lot of that was cattle ranching families and that sort of thing. But a lot of it has changed to second homes and, and kind of recreational ranches. So there's quite a bit of maintenance up there. It's really not, you know, it's, you're remote. And my wife would tell you that, that we're crazy. You know, that's just the reality. But, uh, but uh, it's not as bad as it sounds, you know. And I, I like it. You know, it's because of the, <clears throat> the hunting business and the seasonality of it. And, and then you add on the summer stuff we do too. Um, it gets busy during that time of year. So it's kind of peaceful up there in the winter, and, and it's not, you know, it's got its challenges, but it's not bad. For sure. Um, Cliff, why don't you give me a little bio on yourself um, and how you came to be the owner and operator of uh, Flat Tops Wilderness Guides? Yeah, so I, uh, I grew up part of my childhood in uh, Unit 44 over there on Adams Rib Ranch, and my dad was an outfitter there. And so I was exposed to it from a pretty early age. And then I actually spent the latter half of my childhood where I'm at here, actually visiting right now in Northern California. And I always, you know, hunting had always been a big part of my life um, with my dad doing that. And then I kind of had a, I was lucky in the sense that I was also exposed to the livestock part of the business. My family had big grazing permits on that side of the, the forest in Colorado, so I was also exposed to the packing and the horses and mules and all that, and that's a big part of what we do now, so I kind of had the, I was lucky in the sense I was exposed to that throughout my childhood, so I had interest in hunting, but I was also capable on the livestock end, so I knew, you know, as I went and did kind of for five or six years, I did some other things with my life, I kind of knew that I wanted to get back into it, Um, so three years ago, I bought um, a large permit, in, you know, where, where I'm at now. <clears throat> and then with some partners, I bought the, the ranch that I operated out of. And um, I bought it because it has a long history. Um, and it, you know, it has always been run, pr- you know, pretty well. And it had a, a, you know, every, like a lot of people who have hunted the flat tops are familiar with that outfit. And so I, I, I knew it was a good asset, but it needed, it needed like a, some business marketing and that sort of thing to get it back back going. So it was a good opportunity. The guy I bought it from was a great guy, um, but he really wasn't interested in building the business. So I bought it three years ago and just kind of, um, you know, started that progression to build the marketing back up, get, you know, get hunters up there, improve the gear, improve the stock and all that sort of thing. And then also kind of explore some other options on the hunting front that were a little bit out of, the standard wilderness hunting. So <clears throat> I've been able to do that. I, it's, um, when I bought it, they were doing probably, you know, a dozen hunts a year. Now I'm doing roughly 70 elk hunt, you know, focused elk hunts a year. And then I'm doing probably 10 to 15 mule deer hunts, kind of depending on what I have in terms of um, people who draw those tags. So uh, it, keeps, it keeps me busy. And that's kind of the, the background on the current operation. Um, it's been fun, you know, it's, we, we could get into a long conversation about outfitting and in that world. Um, we already talked a little bit offline about it, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting deal. You, you gotta love it cause it's tremendously hard work, but I, you know, I meet a bunch of great people. I get to enjoy a couple of my passions. So, so I have no complaints. Would you consider yourself a rancher? 
an outfitter, a cowboy, a wrangler? I mean, what what do you tell people that, you know, what what are you? Yeah, so I'm I'm surely not a rancher because I'm not in the cattle business at all. Um, So what I would say is that I have the background in the packing and and all you know the the horse and mule packing and for these this type of outfitting you have to have that that knowledge but in the end I you know I I for sure my primary occupation is an outfitter um, it just happens to be that that's that's just a part of this type of outfitting and that's what you'll see um, you know a lot of the wilderness elk hunts in particular you've kind of got two types of um, uh, outfitters out there. You've got guys who really are uh, are cowboys for the most part, and they would tell you that. You know, that's that's what they enjoy doing. You know, packing and getting people into the wilderness where they can enjoy hunting. And then you got guys that are more hunters slash guides, and really they're probably only doing a few hunts. Um, they may be focused on different species than than elk. You know, they may be doing a couple selective goat hunts or sheep hunts and that sort of thing. And those guys are more hunters slash guides. I would say like in that spectrum, I'm probably three quarters of of the way to the hunter slash guide, but it, but passing is just a part of our thing. So that's, that's an important element of it. Does that kind of answer your question? A little long-winded explanation, but. Yeah, no. Um, so when you were a kid and your dad was an outfitter there in unit 44, uh, was the mule deer hunting uh, as good as it is now or better? And yeah. that's the first question, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and, I, and, and since then I've hunted that area quite a bit on my own, backpack hunting and that sort of thing. You know, when I was a kid, there's absolutely way more deer. Um, and there, there, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. That winter range there has changed a lot. Um, you know, you've got quite a bit of development in eagle, particularly in some of the really sensitive parts of the winter range. That bottom valley has been developed. So I think that is kind of, that's hurt the deer numbers substantially. I mean, you still have genetics for huge deer there. Um, you know, when I was a kid, um, the whole way it was managed was a lot differently. Um, you know, you could get tags there. I believe they're over the counter and, uh, you know, like it was a different world, like just kind of as like an anecdote. I have a set of, uh, I, I have like a skull plate off a deer my dad shot in my house there in Colorado. And it's probably like a, kind of like a 215 typical. And when he shot it, he cut the skull plate off and threw it on the top of the barn and it's bleached. You know what I mean? It wasn't, wasn't uncommon for those deer to be pretty readily available. And now it's not that they're not there. It's just lower numbers. You know what I'm saying, Jay? Gotcha. Yeah, and so how old were you when you were like, your dad would tell you, you know, ride up there and, you know, go pick up so-and-so and take this group there and, you know, spend the night on your own. And, you know, I mean, did you just grow up ever since you can remember off on your own picking up people? Yeah, you know, the the, the livestock thing, a lot of that then was was cattle-oriented, you know, like, and to be honest, I was, you know, I moved from there when I was really independent and in being able to pack and stuff independently. I wasn't old enough to do that. So I was exposed to it. I continue to be exposed to it actually here, here in California. But, you know, my brothers did a lot of that stuff. I mean, those guys, you know, it's kind of a, and a lot of that's changed. But, you know, my brothers would, would you know, go from, 
44, go all the way over to Rudai. You know, that's like a 15 mile horseback ride and go, you know, go get cows or do whatever and bring them back into Adam's rib. So it's kind of a different, different world. You know, I didn't get that exposed to it at that, at that point in my life because I was young. Gotcha. And then you guys moved to California um, and, and were ranching there. So you kind of were, were a little young to be, you know, just out on a horse wherever for however many days on your own. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've been on a horse since I was pretty much an embryo. I mean, you know, my my mom and dad were always on, on stock. And, you know, uh, I've seen a lot of – well, I kind of cringe at it actually because – there's pictures of my mom with me or one of my brothers, you know, in one of those little, little backpacks on a horse, you know, at this, you know, I, I, people might go crazy if you did that now as a kid, but that was just kind of part of our existence. So I was, you know, uh, the horse and mule thing, it's kind of interesting because they're a pain in the butt. If anybody's hunted with them it, <laughs> and, and you've been exposed to them, they're, they're a real pain in the butt, even if you know what you're doing, but if you have the, you know, you have the experience with them, it helps a lot because you kind of know how to deal with them. And I was lucky to not only be exposed to that in Colorado, but I mean, my family's always had horses and stuff. I mean, we always, you know, even once we moved from there, I mean, you know, our tack rooms always had a bunch of pack saddles in them and my dad was always into that. So I was lucky in that regard just because I was constantly exposed to it. How many head of stock do you own right now? So right now I've got 26 mules and about 15 riding horses. And then what, when, I, when I'm at full capacity in a hunting season, I operate with about 30, you know, roughly 30 pack animals and about 20 riding animals. And most of my pack animals are mules. I got a little bit of a mix. Um, you know, I'm, I'm packing and riding some of the horses. So basically okay, 50, every, 50 when I'm operating. 50 when you're operating. Every single outfitter and horseman, packer, whatever you want to call yourself, every single one of you has got the one mule that is that it's about enough to make you pull your hair out, but they're so good that you're not going to let them go. What's the name of your <laughs> one mule that tests you on a daily basis? Uh, I've got a big, you know, I've got a bunch of those big mules that are like uh, draft. The they're, they're, the horse component of them is a draft. And I got one named Julie, and she's awesome. You know, she's great. But it's it's that exact dynamic you're talking about. You know, if you if you turn her out, I mean, if you turn her out up when you're 15 miles in the wilderness, she's going to go home, and she's not going to do it when you're, you know she she's not going to do it when you're looking hard to catch and stuff like that. But yeah, they you know it. You can get into a huge debate on the horse and mule thing. And, you know, if you think hunters and outfitters have opinions on everything, you should talk to packers. You know what I mean? It's like a, <laughs> it's like a night, you know, you can get, you can go down a hundred different, different rabbit holes on them. But, but uh, I use the mules, um, you know, primarily because, you know, my dad used them when I was a kid. We had them, so I'm familiar with them. Um, they, they got everyone's got a different personality though it sounds like you've probably it just like by that question i can tell that you've been around them a little bit you know they, my um my uncles and cousins own some pack stations in the uh, sequoia national park and um i used to listen to their stories 
about you know odds and ends and and different horses and different mules and the same type of thing they always had a couple that you know they didn't want to just take out in the middle of you know the woods and just shoot but they wanted to at times um but they were extremely handy animals but there's always some that were always uh testing their patience for sure oh yeah i mean you you have that all the, as a matter of fact i had my dad out uh, he helped me on a couple of summer trips last year and he was, you know, just uh, chewing my ear out about one that he threw. Ho- you know, the thing about it, some of them, you can put hobbles on them and you can watch them run away because they've got the hobbles figured out. So he was he was up in the very top of the flat tops at probably 11.5, you know, chasing around a big black mule. Um, you know, so that's just, that, you know, it's just, it's just the nature of it. And, you know, as outfitters, we deal with that constantly. Um, but at, over time, at least you get you deal with 90% of those problems just with kind of experience. You start to learn your animals and all that. And then the other advantage, you know, really, Jay, is when you got, when you have 50 of them, um, when you're operating and you're using them every day, you start to get into a system and a lot of those, a lot of the craziness stops. You know what I mean? Because you just, you got a system, you you put them in. Well, and they get into a rhythm too, don't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like they know where they're going, um, you know, they, they're not scared by things and all that, you know, all those things. And, and you know, just packing elk, like we're going to pack out, you know, something like 30 to 30, 40 bulls a year on them, let's say, right? Well, if you got, you know, that's a big challenge for a pack animal to get used to, but at least in that system, they're going to get exposed to it relatively quickly. And then it's one less thing you got to worry about. Then when you go into packing a bull, you know that that mule is going to have no problem. He's just going to stand there, you know, be able to stick it on and be able to get out of there. So it's you know there's a lot of advantages to kind of a, a system around them. So I'm sure you've um, been trying to pack elk out and what have you, and you've had some train wrecks. Is there any specific train wrecks you can tell me about? I love all these stories where you get the, you know, you get the the train wreck stories. So what do you got? Yeah, you know, I it, every year you have a few. You try to you try to avoid them. Um, when you're packing antlers, you know that's that's when you're going to have your your bigger ones. Um, but I'll tell you, you know, the 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 thing is is um, some of the bigger ones happen when just not even when you're when you have you know when you have elk on them and you're packing. Say you've got four mules and you've got two bulls on the four mules. It looks like it's going to be problematic, but my biggest wrecks have actually been just when I'm riding and just something odd happens. Like I actually have a, a meniscus issue now because I had a horse roll on me in the snow, and that's probably the one that sticks most in my head recently. I had my cook was behind me, and I was bringing him out of a camp early, and it was I think it was third season. We probably had like two feet of snow, and uh, I we we came down a steep deep area and he and the cook's not like an experienced horseman but he was he was doing fine and I was talking to him and then my horse just slipped from under me and I ended up underneath him and it, what was weird is the horse just stayed there you know because they'll kind of be in shock because they don't really know what happened either and uh my cook Zach goes Cliff are you all right and I was still sitting under the horse and I was like ah, well Zach right now you know it's pretty marginal we'll we'll see <laughs> and then <laughs> and then uh and then he and then he got up and that's when he kind of hurt me a little bit. But you know you have those things. Um, if you're cautious, Jay, and you 
you kind of, you, and again, it kind of goes back to having a system. You're going to have them no matter what, but, you know, them resulting in real, you know, bad injuries to you or horses, you can avoid that by just kind of your system, you know, how you're tying pack animals together, you know, how how you make sure guys pay attention to them. You make, you know, you, you try to catch things early. You know, if a pack doesn't look right, you fix it, you know. So those are all things you learn because when it goes bad, it's bad. You know, I've had to kill horses and stuff like that, and it's and it's, it's a horrible thing. You know, it's horrible. They, and some, you know, even if you're a big hunter, you know, those horses and stuff, we use them every day, and they're kind of like they're kind of like employees, you know what I mean? And you have a relationship yeah. with them. For sure, they're like family. Let's take a quick break here. At GoHunt.com, we are restoring the heritage of the old and constantly redefining the new. We stay focused and put our efforts into redefining the future of Western hunting. What makes us special? What makes us different? We are the new breed of hunter. We are the customers that we serve. We are the innovators and we are the future. Visit GoHunt.com slash insider and join the movement. Use the J. Scott promo code when signing up and receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. Since 1982, the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix has made it their goal to provide the very best customer service combined with the latest and greatest optics and accessories in the business. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods and mounting accessories for any hunter's optical needs. Go to Outdoorsman's.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code until February 28th to receive 10% off all Outdoorsman's packs and pack accessories. Okay, Cliff, uh, I want to ask you about your elk and your mule deer hunting and have you walk through kind of your typical hunts and how things work from the time people book the hunts to showing up to, um, you know, everything about it. So walk me through all that. Okay. Yeah, and there's a there's a little variation to, you know, the the service that they've, they've chosen to do with us. And I'm about 50-50 right now. I do 50% drop camps and 50% guided. So the the standard setup is, is the same. You come to the ranch, um, and the only way to get into any of our 12 camps is via horse and mule. And uh, so you got to be open to riding. And that's, and that's kind of, to me, that's a, that's a, one of the cool parts about this type of trip is that you're going to go in somewhere pretty remote on a whole, you know, you're going to ride a horse and all your gear and all the camp is going to be packed in on pack stock. So you show up. Um, and then if, if it's a drop camp, what we do is we get your gear all packed up, um, on the mules and then we'll ride you in and then the camps are all set up and, uh, they're, uh, they're in lots of different elevations, but most of them are roughly an hour and a half to, all the way up to three hours. Some of my archery camps are actually up in that four or five hour horseback ride range. And you know, they're pretty high elevation, the high tens to around 11,000 feet. So in the drop camp situation, we pack you in, pack your food and all that, and you kind of take care of yourself. Um, and then we'll, you know, we communicate via satellite phone with our camps. When you kill an elk, we'll come in and pack it out. We give you an overview of kind of, you know, where, where we've packed elk out, where the elk move around those camps and that sort of thing. Um, and I have a lot of repeat business because a lot of the repeat business in that drop camp world kind of learns an area, you know, and then they'll come back and hunt the same, 
same spots. And then so our our guided stuff, which which is kind of what I what I really enjoy, um, and what I've kind of been trying to focus focus a lot of our improvements on is we pack you in the same way. I've got three different camps I guide out of. Um, one's about three-hour horseback ride. The others are about two and a half. So you pack in. Um, How many a, roughly there, miles is that, Cliff? Uh, so you can you when uh, hours equate to essentially three miles per hour on horses. Okay. okay. Um, so you're looking at you know most of them are six plus miles. My furthest camp is about 16 miles. And I don't I don't use it a whole lot because of the logistics around it, and it's really more of an archery type of area. Um, so you're you're basically looking at six to ten is where we do the majority of our hunting. Um, okay. And uh, so um, on the guided stuff, you know, you you get packed in. We've got we've got a cook in there. We've got wranglers take care of the horses and all that. The only difference with that, obviously, is that we have guides in the camp, and then. Um, we have we have a cook in there and then we keep horses. So we have a little little more capability to reach out and, and really find elk if they're not in the real close you know close vicinity um, with the horses. And and it's all you know a lot of that stuff based on people's personal preference. You know some people like to ride a lot, some people like to hike a lot, and uh, we'll we'll guide them either way. Um, we'll take that into account. But in the end, you know particularly elk hunting. Is it's just you got to find elk or you're not really hunting for them is the kind of, is kind of the way I view it. So we focus on that, trying to get you know where we know some elk are and, and do our thing from that point. That was your, did, did I answer answer all those? Yeah, questions? absolutely. And your seasons do any of your seasons fall when the elk are bugling? Yeah, so um, it's a it's an interesting question. So my archery business is growing. Um, is, is probably the area where I'm growing the most. And that has to do, I think, Jay, with just the demographics of, you know, there's, I mean, you know, I see it as, a, it's, I think it's a really cool trend, but you're getting a lot of more, you know, a younger demographic, more active, kind of, they're, they're, they see it as more of an adventure and archery kind of fits well for them. So I think that's why we're growing that part of it. Um, what I'm seeing is, you know, the last couple of years have kind of been, been uh, weird. Um, for a lot of the guys in, in Colorado in terms of the rut, um, you know, like for instance, last year, you know, we had a lot of bugling activity and we're even calling in bulls and during first rifle season, which is weird. You, you know what I mean? That's, that, that's not typical for that area. You know, the, what everybody will tell you is that, you know, that 21st to the 25th of September is probably your peak rut, really, right? But, um, I've noticed like you, we're still catching a little rutting activity in first season, which is, which is nice, but it's kind of, it's weird. And I think it, the, the troubling part about it is, you know, we have a, we have a gap between our, between our archery season and first rifle. And I think a lot of the rutting activity is going on during that gap. Um, Do you think that's can, because of pressure and, and you know, maybe I, they... You know, yeah, they, they don't get as much pressure, so they get to rutting. Yeah, you know, I I've heard a lot of different theories on it, and I have my own kind of kind of view on it. I the old time outfitters a lot, like I know a lot of old time outfitters that are really kind of anti archery because that's how they feel. They feel that the the pressure there's a lot of pressure 
during archery season on these elk, and it's kind of affected the, their breeding, and they're actually, you know, that the conception is actually happening early October, and now you got younger calves. So, or, you know, so it, I think that's part of it. What I notice is this: is that, and, and, it, and it plays into this. I don't know if if it has actually changed the dates, but what I'll notice is I can be in those first couple weeks up there guiding or scouting on my own and I'll, I'll, I'll see some rutting activity, like kind of what you'd expect, right? Like pre-rut kind of activity, some little bulls are getting with cows in like the second week of September. And then you got this pressure comes in and then they, everything shuts up. But if you get up at night, they're still rutting. You know what I mean? They're, they're, you're hearing the, the bugling stuff. And I think it's just a, they just go more nocturnal. You know, and I've heard a lot of guys that you've interviewed kind of, they got, it sounds like a lot of people are kind of coming to that same conclusion. It just makes sense with the anecdotal evidence I'm seeing. For sure. Um, so you do these drop camps, and let's talk about archery first. So guys that want to archery elk hunt with a bow during the rut, and you take them up there and you can either drop them off in outfitter tents and they kind of fend for themselves or and they do their own cooking and all that. You take in their food or yep. you can do the guided portion where they ride in and there's actually a cook and there's actually people to take care of the horses and what have you. Um, and, you know, are your archers, I mean, chasing bulls that are bugling or is it sporadic from year to year? It's, I would call it sporadic from year to year. Um, I mean, if, if a guy, like in my drop camps, if, if guys go in and they have the intention that they're going to cover ground on foot until they get in to elk, then they're going to have a very good chance to kind of have that prototypical, um, you know, archery hunt where they're going to be into elk bugling and that's the norm. Now, the, the caveat to that, and I always tell this to guys, and this is just this is just my view on it, Jay. Particularly in archery season in these wilderness areas, the elk are real localized. Like they'll stay in like there. It's the one time when elk really kind of stay in like a little home range, in, from my perspective, and they'll have just moved into it. Like I'll see elk in a totally different area in August. And then when you get into September, now they've moved into kind of some historical rutting areas. I, I give guys, I'll kind of tell guys where I think those are, and those may not be right next to the camp. I mean, the way that we've structured it is we don't really want our camps in those areas because we don't want to mess them up. So if you're willing to put some miles on and really first find elk, you know, in an area, you're going to have a good chance at, at you know, that kind, that kind of activity. Now, the one thing that sometimes, you know, guys lose time is that when, what I find is that you can find fresh elk sign in places, but if the elk haven't been there like that day, like if that elk poop isn't green and slimy and just came out of their butt, you need to keep looking because they're, they're, you can waste a lot of time in an area that the elk aren't, and then you're going to have very limited exposure to that rutting activity. You know, these are... It's not it's not really high elk density anywhere in these wilderness areas in Colorado. So you can't you know you got to find the spots first. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And then moving on into the rifle seasons, 
Um, you're saying that sometimes that first rifle season, guys can actually experience some 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 decent bugling. How does your success rate as far as people bagging an animal compare, say, to, from archery into the first season, second season, third season, et cetera? I mean, what kind of like success rates as far as actually harvesting an animal are you running? Yeah, so I'll kind of I'll go through it. So the the way I always put it is that um, archery you're you're more likely consistent consistently get into elk and see elk. However, my harvest rate is substantially lower during archery just because all the different things that need to align for you to get get you know get, to kill a bull. So what what I see is that first season is First, season, first rifle, second, third, and fourth. And I have the history of my permit for ever since it started about 30 years ago. On average, it runs between 45 and 50% harvest rate. But what you see is that first season has very little variability. You know, you're going you're gonna, to, you know, basically 40 to 45% of guys are going to harvest elk. And then above that, you know, there's, there's you know, you get a couple of, you know, there's, that doesn't account for all the experience and chances guys are getting. And I can kind of, there's, I have one big tip on that for guys that I'll, I'll get into later. But, um, so your first season is pretty standard because you're kind of catching them. They've been, they've had that break between archery and first rifle. So it kind of has an opening day kind of pop, you know, the first few days. So it's pretty much the same. And then year over year, your second and third season is way more dependent on weather. If you don't get weather, um, like we have in the last couple of years, you're going to have a much, you're going to probably have closer to like a 25, 30% harvest rate if it's dry. Now, if you have the opposite where you got deep snow, you've got elk concentrating, you've got them move into areas where they're more accessible, um, you know, you may do way better than you did first season. So essentially your, your first season is kind of like a, Sticks to the average, and the others are highly volatile. Does that make sense? For sure. And you know, um, do you have one season over the other that I guess it, you, you just said it? Your first season is usually pretty predictable, and then you can either ha you can either do really good or really bad depending on weather on the other seasons. Yeah, you know, it's not. It, I mean, it's not. There's, you know, you always have opportunities. It's just they're more variable. You know, but. Like third season is going to swing bef between 20% harvest rate all the way up to 70 if we've got a tremendous amount of snow. You know what I mean? So you, you, you always have an opportunity. It's not, you know, some areas where guys outfit, particularly, I know this about a, a few guys in Wyoming, if you don't have weather, it's going to be 0% success because they're, right. they're in, you know, they're in an area that the elk got to be pushed into. That's not what it is. You know, here, what it is that if it's not cold and you don't have snow and particularly cold, I'm kind of, to me, when I watch elk, if you don't have those frigid temperatures, they'll stay nocturnal. And that'll, yeah. that'll kill you in that second and third season. But if you've got frigid temperatures, they've got to eat more because they're burning calories like crazy. And so that's when you start catching them. The elk are there. It's just when they're in timber, it's tough. You know, and that's, yeah. and that's why you get that variability. If you have someone that can shoot really well, I mean, they can, they can lay down and shoot an elk at four or 500 yards. 
uh, or, you know, they're, they're a good marksman. They're really good with their rifle. And they also can hike and they've got a good attitude. Do most people that fit that category get a shot at, at, at a bull? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, three quarters of the guys that fit that category or more are going to have an opportunity. The guys that, you know, the guys that are putting on, you know, five to eight miles a day and, you know, and they, and, and, and then they, they're, they can shoot and all that and they take advantage of opportunities. They're going to have that chance to kill one. It's very likely. It's ne- you know, it's never guaranteed, but it's likely. And I think that kind of gets to the, the tip I was going to say. And I heard, um, you had Craig Steele on, I believe, and he said something and it, it resonates with me so much. And that's when we're talking elk hunting, guys got to get in the mindset that when you get an opportunity to kill a bull, you got to get it done because elk are, you know, like I, I, when I, when I've guided a lot of times, we'll have a short opportunity to kill a bull. We'll be sitting out there for 100, 150 yards away and he's got 45 seconds, right? Which is plenty of time to get down and kill it. But there's a lot of, if it's the guy's first experience during that hunt, there's a lot of kind of like, if he, he's trying to get a rest and all that. And then guys will say, well, you think he'll be back here tomorrow? And I say, well, I can almost 100% guarantee you he's not going to be in this spot tomorrow. And that's just the nature of that rifle elk hunting you, for us, you know, Jay. And that's, you got to, when you get an opportunity and you want to, and that's a bull that you want to kill, you've got to do it then. You know, this, this, you rarely get second chances on the same elk. Does, does that does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Uh, let's take another quick break here to hear from our sponsors. Utah Hydrographics is in the water transfer printing service, and they are open to whatever you can dream up. Choose from a wide range of camo patterns, designs, and colors. Whether it's guns, bows, tools, rifle stocks, vehicles, steering wheels, fenders, dashboards, paint guns, fishing rods, cups, tripods, watches, knife grips, helmets for a local sports team or for your motorcycle, picture frames, mailbox, animal skulls, you name it, they can probably do it. Utah Hydrographics loves taking things that are general looking and turns them into something that looks fantastic and eye-popping. Give them a call and see what they can do for you and receive up to a 10% discount by using the J. Scott 16 promo code. Visit them at utahhydrographics.com or on Instagram at utahhydrographics. Whether you are interested in elk, deer, antelope, bighorn sheep, or moose, Western Hunter and Elk Hunter magazines will bring the adventure to your mailbox. These publications feature articles on the finest hunting gear, tips and tactics from experienced hunters, field judging trophies, glassing techniques, calling strategies, and much more. To become a more knowledgeable and skilled hunter, subscribe today. Go to westernhunter.net forward slash jscott and enter your email address for a chance to win a $1,500 credit towards any Swarovski product. All right, so Cliff, as as these seasons um, go on, so uh, do you typically put your camps like up on ridge lines where they can work their way out of the camps and and walk without having to gain or drop a huge elevation where they can get to glassing points and such? Or how do you have your camps positioned there? 
So um, a, a, a lot of the, uh, the camps are kind of established, like they're permitted, so I can't move them. But they were, they were put in, in areas for certain reasons, and they all kind of vary. And I have a huge elevation grade in my camps. I've got them at 9, nine 4, all the way up to 11, 5. So my early season camps are pretty much on the, ge- the geographic flat tops. So they're at that big plateau up there um, at 11,000 feet. And, that, and those camps are essentially set up just like you're saying. You're, you're, once you get the elevation behind you, that country up there is not that rough. So what you can do is there you've got a lot of opportunities to glass. Um, you know, and that's, and it's also, you got a lot of opportunities to cover ground and find the exact little finger drainages where these elk are rutting or where they're just hanging out after the rut in the case of the first season. Um, so in those camps, those camps are like that. And then because of the, the, um, the weather issues we deal with in the snow, though, once I get out of first season, I can't use those camps and I got to start more heavily using my camps that are down down in the drainages and some of those vary you know some of them are pretty thick stuff you know and probably the better ways to hunt them are focus on still hunting you know and going through areas that I know are productive and then but other ones are on south-facing stuff and you can still do a lot of glassing you know and I and I, I do a mix of it when I'm guiding you know my preference is, is to do a mix and all my guides have a little bit different focus and um, or approach to it and then also we have to account for, you know, the, the, the people that were, were guiding different physical levels, different, you know, um, some of them don't want to ride as much. Um, some of them, you know, a lot of guys in a pretty productive way to kill elk, I don't particularly use it a lot myself as a guide, but as the historical areas where they come out and feed or they're just moving, you know, sit guys that are patient on those spots, you could, that's how a lot of elk get killed in these type of areas. You know, it's just you get a patient guy who can sit and watch a spot for a couple of days, and he'll probably kill one if he's patient. You know, for sure. Um, do you do bull elk hunts and cow hunts both? Yeah, you know, um, and this gets into kind of yeah, I do. Um, the vast majority of what we're doing is bull hunts, and I've actually. And, I, and I've shared this with other people. And there's a couple. There, I have a couple of neighboring outfitters that are doing it. They're not packing out cows anymore. Um, a lot of us kind of have an opinion that the female harvests. Um, I, I don't want to say anything bad about the fishing game guys because they're very good. I have good relationships with them, and they have a tough job managing all these different units. But the female harvest of of elk, and then deer you know they have doe tags in in these areas which to me is absurd um it's kind of something that we all feel is maybe getting a little bit overdone i mean there's a lot of elk these are huge elk herds um but a lot of guys have taken the stance to not pack out cows anymore and i'm kind of leaning that way you know for archers and um, muzzleloader guys i because because there's so many things you're trying to get aligned with the with your short range, I really don't. It's a, I, I don't have a problem with that at all. Um, but I really, you know, I'd prefer guys just hunted bulls. And in in when I say that in the rifle seasons, we're not killing a bunch of huge bulls. You know, Jay, we we pretty much kill bulls if they're legal. Um, what does that it take unit, to be legal? It's got to have four points on one side or or a five inch brow time. Okay, and then. Um, so you're killing legal bulls, 
but every year, like every year out of all your hunters, like what would, what's kind of your best bull that you'll kill? And then, you know, what's the biggest bull yeah. you've ever had up there? So, so the, the wilderness is like, um, it's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Right. Um, and so we, our typical bull is like a, is like a nice five by five. We kill a bunch of raghorns. We'll kill a few, you know, uh, six by sixes. And then, you know, every 15 bulls will kill like a, you know, a, a 330 bull, right? Something like that. That's pretty typical. Um, so one out of 10, one out of 15 is a 300 inch bull, but usually, you know, obviously on the lower end of the 300. And then, um, the, uh, on the bigger end, um, I, in 2014, we packed out a bull that scored like 255 and he's a kind of a weird looking bull. I've got a picture of him on the website. I've got a set of sheds that one of my guides found that I scored like three, 365, 370-ish. So they're there. It's just not the norm. Um, you know, it's, uh, the thing that's great about it is you can always come hunt right? The, the tag availability is there. You don't have to wait, you know, it puts you in the game, but it's for sure managed for opportunity. But the great thing about it on the deer and the elk is because it's a wilderness, a wilderness that's really, you know, the area we hunt is pretty hard to access on your own. You get some backpacking traffic, but not, not in the deep, deep stuff. And so you've got deer and elk that even with the hunting pressure that exists in these, can survive and get old. So there's always a chance of killing a really big deer or a really big elk. Um, it's just that they're not the norm. Gotcha. Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, yeah, so if, if someone gets their elk, uh, does the guide then take care of the elk and then they call a packer down at the main, main station and they come and get it or do they hang it until the end and then everything's packed out all at the end? So yeah, in in our in our guided stuff, we take care of everything, quarter them up, pack them out, and do the whole the whole thing. In our um, drop camps, um, I've instituted this satellite phone thing, and particularly um, archery season and first season, um, I like to get elk out as fast as I can. So I tell guys the minute that they get to one, you know, that if it's in bow season, the minute you've tracked it down, it's dead, even before you stick a knife in it, give us a call so I can start to logistically figure out how I'm going to get in and get it. Um, and it can be a challenge. Like one of my, one of the guys that packed for me, he went in and packed two bulls out, you know, that were 13 miles in and packed them out in the same day. So, you, you know, it takes a lot of time to do it, but you really want to get them out in September, you know? Um, and so we try to do that, and part of that is to keep the game meat good, but also part of it is that we're, you know, a big part of my business is logistics, and if guys got two bulls hanging in there that I didn't anticipate, when I go in to pack them out, it's a problem because I'm packing everything real heavy. So we try to get it done as quick as we can. You know, in the rifle seasons, um, meat's not going to go bad in the in the second, third, and fourth rifle season. So you know, I'm, I'm not as worried about it, but we still try to take care of it just for logistics. Gotcha. Gotcha. I want to ask you some questions about your, uh, deer hunting. I know, uh, I've gone on your Instagram and on your website and you guys have been killing some pretty dang nice deer. Um, what's going on with your deer hunts? Yeah. You know, and the, I, so 
I'll just uh, uh, preemptively say that I love hunting mule deer, Jay. So that's kind of there was very little deer hunting going on there um, from from an outfitting perspective when I bought it. I love deer hunting. and I love guiding deer hunters. You know, it's the one time that that I get to, uh, you know, it's the one time I get my spotting scope out and get to score animals and stuff like that. So I enjoy guiding and doing it. And I've really kind of figured them out. It's not, you know, these units, all those units up there are not high deer density, but you know, if you have the patience and you do some scouting and I enjoy doing that, um, you can find big deer, you know, you're not going to find, you know, a guy's not going to go out and see, a, bun- a bunch of big deer, but if he holds out, particularly that fourth season, you know, usually I can get him a pretty good deer. Um, and we've killed, we've killed a couple really big ones, which is great. Um, and it, you know, they're there. Um, a lot of it, if a guy, what I found too, and you know, I see this trend going on. I know you're a big proponent of it, but if you can sit in glass, um, and, and really spend four or five hours a, a, a day doing that, you'll start seeing stuff that you never thought was there. You know what I mean? And so that's kind of the approach I take on it. And it's, it's been fun. And, um, you know, I, I spoke to you about it. I've got some opportunities for a season. Um, you, you need about, you need, I think, you know, this year there might be a little volatility to it because all of our seasons are later and that's going to be really a middle of the rut type of hunt. But, you know, if you have four or five points, um, you know, I've, there's, I've got a great hunt for guys like that because they can draw that tag. Um, and it's, you know, it's the conditions are rough. It's cold and all that. But I, I guide from our, my family's ranch. It's a, it's a fun hunt. You know, you're going to see deer um, and the chances of finding a, a good one are, are, are pretty good. <laughs> and the so, other. The, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, just, I was going to say the other, the other kind of unique opportunity that me and you talked about quite a bit was that high, the, they have an early high country hunt um, that's the beginning of September. Um, it's, a, it's a really, uh, you know, it's, there's not a lot of hunts like that, so guys like, like to do it. It's high points. It's probably going to take nine or ten points this year to draw it. But you get to hunt those mule deer up in some beautiful areas, and again, you're not going to have high density of them, but it's a good opportunity to kill kill a big one. And when you say big on that early season hunt, give me a range of what you're ex- expecting. Yeah, so so to me, big and mule deer nowadays is like a 180 or bigger. And so on that early season, they'll still be in the velvet. You have a chance to pattern them a little bit. Um, you can glass them up and really kind of focus on, on a, a certain buck or two. And you think that the chances of killing a 180-plus buck are fairly decent? Yeah, I think they're very good. And that, in that you know, they're, they're, in that, you know, they're in the 70%-plus bracket is kind of what I would say. You've got a good opportunity. And the way I've been, been – uh, you know, organizing that hunt is that, I'm, you know, part of that is me doing quite a bit of scouting. The mule deer that time of year, like I said, they're not, not high density by any means, but you're, you're hunting them way up in that 11,000 kind of, kind of, you know, elevation. And if you find them, I've found that they'll be pretty, you know, they'll be pretty localized. And, uh, you don't, you know, the, when you get into these second and third rifle seasons, where in a lot of units in Colorado, it's very easy to draw a tag. Um, it's really hard to find these big deer because they're not in those that high open country. They've gone into the trees. 
and they've pretty much gone nocturnal. So that's one of your opportunities. And then the only opportunity outside of that is when they're coming back down into the pockets of does and stuff during forest season. Um, the only thing about forest season is you kind of, it's a little bit more of a roll of the dice because I, you know, I can't get the deer more locked down because they're moving, they're chasing does. I might, you know, they're, it's just a little bit hard, harder to pattern them that, during that time. So the good news is on fourth season is that the new buck could show up any day. The bad news is he could show up and leave as quickly as he showed up because he's chasing does and he's traveling and rutting around and you never know what might show up. It's a double-edged sword. You never know what might show up, but you never know. You find a buck and he's only there for 15 minutes and he's on the move again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, which, so you, go ahead. Which hunt do you think has the best high-end potential of bucks. I mean, you said the early season velvet hunt is a 180-plus buck hunt. What's your thoughts on the fourth season? Is it a 180-plus hunt? And then which one out of the two do you think has that chance for, you know, 200 or over? You know, I it, it's, it's a tough question. I think on average you're going to have higher success. You're going to see more of those bigger deer in the rut hunt, the fourth season hunt. Um, but it's hard, you know, because, you know, I, I can only do it year to year. Um, you know, this year I could go up there early and scout around and I could lock down, you know, a couple 200 inch typicals. And then I could tell a guy there's pretty good chance we're going to be able to find them again because I know where they're at, you know, and then in that case, that'd be a pretty, I would say that's, you know, you're going to have a really high potential success, success rate, but you know, on average, that rut hunt, you're just going to have a better, there's, you're, you get into more you're seeing deer. more deer. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the other thing about it is, you know, that first hunt is a, a lot of guys have, you know, and, and I think a lot, there's a, this is a reason that a lot of guys like to archery hunt elk and that, and that's because you get into these beautiful areas. And so that first hunt kind of has that component too. But the other side of that is it's more physical. You know, you got to be willing to be up there for five or six days at 11,000 feet. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the real deal. Um, the fourth season is more, you got more of the elements, but you're also, you got a warm shower at night. You got a, you know, you're sleeping in the bed and all that. It's, it's, so that's, that's something to consider too, you know. For sure. Absolutely. It sounds, um, it sounds great. And, um, you're able to, uh, if guys want to know more about both of those hunts, uh, either the uh, velvet first first season uh, uh, rifle hunts or the early season rifle hunts or those fourth season deer hunts, uh, you're you'd be willing to talk to people if they've got more questions, correct? Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm I'm obsessed with you know chasing big mule deer, so the you know the only caveat to that is if you call me about it, I might talk your ear off for a couple hours, you know. So make sure you got the time. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I like, I mean, they're funny. It's not like I, I don't, it, I don't dislike elk hunting. It's just, you know, it's, everybody's got their, their thing. And I, I, I like that for lots of reasons. So yeah, I, I, I love to talk to guys about it. And I, you know, I, and, and I'll talk to guys about some other, you know, other areas too. You know, I, I do know 44 really well. I obviously, I can't, you know, I can't outfit it in it by, you know, by, by any means. But I can chat with people about, you know, that experience out there. For sure. And the 
uh, early season velvet, the mule deer hunt, how many tags total are there on that hunt and how many tags would you be allowed to take? Have you guys heard about PhoneScope? PhoneScope is a privately held company that makes custom-molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. Take digiscoping photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. PhoneScope is the future of digiscoping. Get yours now. Use the JSCOT16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at PhoneScope, that's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com, or on Instagram, at PhoneScope. Wilderness Athlete is committed to improving the health and quality of life for the outdoor athlete by providing field-tested, scientifically validated nutrition and sports performance products. Check them out at WildernessAthlete.com and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off. So there's um, that that quota is running. I, it's ten. It's ten tags. Now most of them are going to residents. Um, it varies a little bit depending if groups are applying or whatever. But essentially, you've got three or four non-resident tags there, um, and uh, you know you're so at the maximum four. Um, and then in terms of what I can take, um, I mean, I can take all four of them. I have no limitations on what I can take. You know, it depends. I would, the way I would, I prefer to do that is if it's, if it's, you know, two groups of a father and son, then I'd be willing to do four. But the reality of it, if, it, if it's individuals, I prefer just to do two because I've got a lot of scouting involved in that. And again, I don't want to be, you know, you know, I want to make sure I've got deer for everybody to look at. So I'd like, I like to stick around too. Yeah. Gotcha. And then on the fourth season, the same question. Yeah. So the fourth season tag, um, I, there's 50, the quote is 50 and it's, it's single unit based. And when guys look at, um, these units in Colorado, there's a little confusion because you've got some hunts that are combined, like the elk hunts or a bunch of units together and that sort of thing. So in this case, you have 50, and it doesn't mean, you know, that can change, Jay, they never tell us, um, but it's it's pretty it's pretty set in stone. You know, I don't think there's going to be huge variability around that. So you've got, you know, you've essentially got 10 to 15 resident tags, and, I, and I'm probably not quoting it, or excuse me, non-resident. It, I'm not, I might not be saying it perfectly, but that's, that's it's, it's pretty close. The gist of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and those four-season uh, tags, this season dates for the fourth season are about as late as they possibly get, are they not? Yeah, you know, it's a, and we talked about that a bit. It, it's a, it's going to be really an interesting season. I, I, I look forward to it um, because of the late dates. You know, really, typically our dates are really kind of in the first. It's like they've been, they're not really like deep, deep in the rut, but this year they're going to be. And uh, that's going to be interesting across Colorado. And I urge anybody, you know, for us, um, you know, I'm obviously biased, but I think it's going to benefit us uh, given my, given the geography and the fact that I have this big uh, swoop across elevation. Um, I think that's going to be good for us because all I'm going to do is I'm going to end up with, you know, more deer and, and, and then it's going to be easier to hunt them because we're in the rut. But I urge anybody who's looking at Colorado hunts, 
to consider that these deer might be in totally different areas than they typically are during, during fourth season. You know, I think some units you might have these deer might be lower on private than people are used to. Um, so that's something to consider when you're choosing units is overall, I think it's going to be a really good thing for the hunting because you're going to be deeper in the rut, but it, it could affect different areas differently. Does that make sense? For sure. Yeah, meaning the dates are even later, so they're even further down onto private, and private usually takes in some of the lower, the, the, the winter range country. And yes, the dates may be great, and yes, you may be seeing deer rut, but they could be a half mile over the fence because they've gone ahead and dropped all the way down into the winter range. Yeah, exactly. Because, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, a, lo a large portion of the good winter range is on private. And, uh, you know, the other thing is these deer, you know, I've watched them and I've, I've got some good buddies who are biologists and one, one in particular is a mule deer focused biologist and the, the deer, they really move. They don't, it, unless you get high accumulations of snow where they got feed problems, where they can't get to their feed, they move kind of on the same dates every year. And so it, part of it's this rut, but part of it's just their natural migration and if they're a week ahead of that, it could put them in a totally different area. So, yeah, it's, it's all is exactly what you're saying, but that's just – it also just has to do with the fact that their migration is photo period based, and they're going to move, and they're going to be in a little bit different spot. Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about your summer pack trips uh, as well. For, is it obviously for sightseeing and fishing? And then, yeah. and then also, do you do – hourly and day rides too or is it just pack trips yeah so i i focus on um more of the expedition slash adventure like pack trips um with with my operation it just kind of makes more more sense um so most of my summer stuff is multi-day i will do full day fishing trips um and uh you know i'm gonna i'm gonna for sure get you out on one jay because I know I know that you'd probably enjoy it as a you're you're a big fly fisherman, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'll, I love it. I'll, I'll I'll get you. Out. It's you know there's um there's lots of different different ways we can do it. But in terms of who you know where the interest uh, comes from comes from is part of it is you know um, fishermen that want to want to fish that high alpine stuff. We have lakes. And then we have a bunch of good native cutthroat and, and then brook trout fishing down lower in these, these alpine streams. Um, so that's part of it. And those guys will do, you know, a two or three day pack trip that's kind of fishing focused. We can hit several different lakes, you know, different types of fishing. And then the other part of that business is just family, is, is families or, or corporate groups that just want an adventure. And they may do some fishing, you know, while, you know, while we do the trip, but really the focus is pretty much just a really remote, well-equipped camping trip. Um, and it's fun. I mean, for a family, it's fun. You know, the, that kind of camping, um, it's different. You know, we have wall tents, they have wood stoves in them. We're cooking on propane and all that stuff. So you can have a, it's kind of, you know, it's a cushy camping trip, but it still has a, like a, a big adventure aspect because you're, you know, you're 15 miles from a road. Uh, and it's a beautiful country. So um, yeah, I mean, so for do, a lot of people, it'll be the biggest adventure they ever do in their life. And 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 
you know, just riding in and looking at the scenery alone is, is sometimes the biggest adventure that some people, you know, will talk about the rest of their lives. Just just not even getting off the horse. They've already been on the biggest adventure they've ever been on. And I think that's fantastic. But what I hear you saying is you can kind of customize uh, per what somebody needs or what somebody wants. You can customize per group and kind of make it fit for exactly what they're looking for. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. My summer stuff is basically customized trips, um, and then where my hunting stuff has got, you know, we're, we're more of like a, a certain service base. I, I will do some customization on some things on that too, but my summer stuff is pretty much people call, they kind of tell me what they want to do, and then I and then I I kind of mold a service around it, um, if if that makes makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been awesome having you on, and I feel like you and I could probably talk on a lot of subjects and uh, look forward to having you uh, on again to talk maybe more specifically about some of these different things we touched on today. Um, I will tell you, I love your websites. Um, your wife has a Instagram page that I just love. It's Healthy, Hungry, and Happy. And uh, she does a phenomenal job on that. And uh, your your social media and your your websites and such are awesome with great photos. And um, it's 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 very evident that you run a great business. Uh, so I want to commend you on that. And I want to give you a chance to uh, tell people how they can get a hold of you uh, to find out more about the trophy mule deer hunting and. The, the, the pack-in uh, drop camps and, and the elk hunting and, and the summer pack trips. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, and I really appreciate you having me on, Jay. Um, you know, a lot of what I do, you know, you, a lot of, I respect a lot of these guys who are doing a lot of the social media because it, it takes a lot of work to get that good content. So I really appreciate your feedback on that. And also appreciate the fact that you also do a bunch of it, and I, I enjoy that. Um, yeah, the best way to get a hold of me is just through the website. Um, the uh, the domain name is ftguides.com, and that'll actually take you to flattopswildernessguides.com. It's just easier to go ftguides.com. My Instagram is cliff c l i f f g r y, and uh, all I'll say on that is you mentioned my wife, and I if if you can do anything, get these guys to follow me on Instagram because I want to get more followers than my wife. She's got like thirty. <laughs> Good luck, 30, buddy. She's yeah, yeah. I I got you. It's probably it's probably uh probably never gonna happen. But uh, but anyways, I can attempt. Um, but and then I'm on Facebook and all that stuff too. But the links are the links are through the website. And guys can either shoot me an email on that, um, or call me on the numbers on the website. But they can also just email me at cliff at ftguides.com. And, uh, you know, I'm traveling a little bit now, but uh, I, I love to chat with people about all the different opportunities we provide. So I, I welcome the conversation. Sounds good. And I don't have the Colorado regs in front of me, but the deer and elk applications are due, what, coming up in April here? April yeah. 3rd, maybe? It, yeah, it's, I believe it's April 5th this year. It's always that first week of April. Okay. And I always tell people just don't wait till April 5th because the, the website might not work. Um, so, so get it done before that, but yeah, it's, it's the first couple of days of April. Awesome. Well, sounds good. Well, I really appreciate having you on and you enjoy your family time out in California. And, um, when I, I'm going to be getting up to Colorado at the end of May and I'll be there all summer. So I'll definitely look you up and, uh, 
Uh, appreciate all the info on the trophy mule deer hunting and, and the elk and all, all the different things. And uh, you guys travel safe when you head back to Colorado. And God bless you. And thanks for spending time with us. All right. Thanks a lot, Jay. I appreciate it.